Hey everyone, and welcome to the Bethlehem Church of Christ podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope that today's message encourages and inspires you and helps you on your journey to discover and follow the will of God. To obtain a typed outline of today's message, you can go to the show notes or the details page of your podcast platform. Today, we continue on in our God Win series with a look at Revelation 4 and 5, God's call to worship. Today, we'll be looking at what worship is and why we worship our God. And now, here's Tom Claiborne with his message in the God Win series called God's Call to Worship. Turn to Revelation chapter 4. We'll be looking in just a moment at 4 and 5. I firmly believe that any time the Bible is taught or preached, that it is extremely important. But I also believe that occasionally there are passages and themes and messages that rise to a little bit higher level of importance, and I believe this is one of them. Um, because when we learn to truly see see God and see Him on His throne, um, that's about as central to being a Christian and following God as, as anything. And Revelation 4 and 5 teaches us a whole lot about worship. Revelation 4 and 5, God's call, his call to worship. The famous investigator Sherlock Holmes and his partner Dr. Watson were on a camping trip one time. After a good meal, they were exhausted, and they laid down in their tent to go to sleep. Some hours later, Holmes awoke and nudged his faithful friend and said, Watson, look up at the sky and tell me what you see. Watson replied, I see millions and millions of stars. Holmes says, what does that tell you? Watson pondered for a moment and said, astronomically, it tells me there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, I observe that Saturn is in Leo. Time-wise, I deduce that the time is approximately a quarter past three. Theologically, I can see that the Lord is all-powerful, that we are small and insignificant. Meteorologically, however you say that word, (laughs) I suspect that we will have a beautiful day tomorrow. What does it tell you? Mr. Holmes, the renowned investigator, was silent for a moment, and then he spoke. He said, Watson, you idiot, that means somebody stole our tent. (laughs) You see, Watson was so caught up in the faraway stars that he missed the obvious fact that their tent was no longer over them. I happen to believe that that same thing often happens when people get caught up in all the details of the book of Revelation. So today, as we enter a new section of the book, which starts in chapter 4, we'll look at 4 and 5, let's not miss the Lord God who is on his throne, and let's not miss the lion, lamb, Jesus And let's not miss the important lessons about worship, our earthly worship here. Chapter 4 of Revelation opens up with these words, and there'll be a 
uh, an artist's rendering of what this might have looked like on your screen. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And, a vo and the voice I had heard, had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. So John was given a vision of heaven that he then tried to describe using human language, which that's basically impossible for human language to describe the glory of heaven. But in Revelation 4, we, we see it's, it's primarily about God the Creator ruling in all his glory. Revelation 5 is primarily about Jesus the Redeemer ruling with God the Father. And that's the two things we should see more than anything else. Now this likely, what we're about to read in Revelation 4 and 5, it likely was not just a one-time event, but I believe it was rather an ongoing scene in the throne room of God that was true in A.D. 90, it was true in the year 580, it was true in the 1600s, it was true in the 1900s, and that very vision could be true today if we could have that door in heaven opened up to us. So we ask the question, why did God give this vision of Revelation 4 and 5 for you and me to see, and for people the last 2,000 years to see? Well, number one, I think he gave it to remind us that he is in control. I think God wants us to read Revelation 4 and 5 and say, yep, God is still in control. Secondly, I believe it's to offer us hope of a glorious future despite the tribulations in this sin-cursed world that we're about to see more of in chapter 6. And thirdly, I believe God gave this also to guide us in our worship today and what it really means to worship. So today on your outline, there are four main points, and those are the four lessons I think Revelation 4 and 5 teaches us about what worship really is. And here's the first. Worship is a tool to help us see God. Worship is a tool to help you and me see God. You see, the fact is, we never fully see God in this life. You and I never will fully see God in this life. Matter of fact, few people throughout history, few people in the Bible actually saw God. And nobody in the Bible saw God in all his glory, or they would not have survived. They saw visions. Isaiah, in chapter 6, uh, saw his, God's image through a whole lot of smoke. In, in, in Exodus 33, Moses saw God's backside but not his full glory. Jacob in Genesis 32 and Abraham in Genesis 18 saw God take a human form. And here, John only saw a vision. Look again at verse 2. At once, John says, I was in the Spirit, and there before me was the throne in heaven and was someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. 
These are the seven spirits of God, or sevenfold spirits, some translations say. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. So what's God's main message for us in that image? I think God is saying, look at the incredible power and authority of God. <laughs> and look at the incredible majesty and beauty of our creator, God. And look at the worth and value of God. It's not about Jasper and Carnelian. It's about the greatness of God. This is a God who deserves humble worship, is what that vision is telling us. So let's always remember that one of the purposes of our worship is to lead us to the point where we simply cry out or sing out, God is amazing. God is amazing. You see, each aspect of worship gives us a glimpse of God. Not all of him, but a glimpse of God. Reading the Bible helps us see God. Meditating on the Bible helps us see God a little clearer. Being silent before God can help us see God. The Lord's Supper is to help us see God. Prayer is to help us see God. Music is to help us see God. Do you realize throughout the ages, music has been a natural response to something exciting or awesome? Matter of fact, there's Bible examples of this. In Exodus 15, God parted, or Exodus 13 and 14, God parted the Red Sea for the Israelites to go through on dry ground. When they got to the other side, in chapter 15, guess what Moses did? He sat down and wrote a song about it. In Judges chapter 5, God gave his people an astounding, surprising victory that they should not have won otherwise. And what happened after the victory? Deborah, the ruler of Israel, sat down and wrote a song about what God had just done. Many times in the Psalms, you have David writing about something God had done in his life. You have the sons of Korah writing about something God had just done. Music. So I got a question for you. Does God like old songs or new songs? The answer? Yes. Yes. Revelation 4.8, we said it earlier together, it was read again, and I think it was in the video, it's, it's appeared a lot of times this morning. Revelation 4.8 is a really old song. It's at least 700 years old at the time that John is writing this. Holy, 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 because we saw the, the angels singing that song for the first time in Isaiah chapter 6. Now they changed some of the words, added some words to it. <laughs> that song is now 2,600 years old. Holy, holy, holy. <laughs> But then in chapter 5, verse 9, it says this. This is after seeing the Lamb. It says, and they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. A new song. Psalm 96 says, sing to the Lord a new song. Psalm 98 says, sing to the Lord a new song. But of course, if you think about it, <laughs> These psalms are now really, really, really old songs that we're still acknowledging. So the terms old and new are quite relative if you think about it. And the fact is, new songs will always be written as long as people are growing in their faith. 
And as long as people are experiencing God in new ways, there will always be new songs written. It's exactly how God has wanted it. So, if Revelation 4 and 5 are truly a scene from heaven, it's likely that we're going to be learning a lot of new songs in heaven that we never sang on earth. And we'll probably be singing some old songs that we sang on earth. And we might even be learning some old songs from the 1200s or the 1500s that we didn't know in this life, but some other believers did. But most of all, when we're in heaven doing that, we won't be complaining or arguing or boycotting certain songs because our focus will be completely on the Lord God on the throne and not ourselves. Worship is a tool to help us see God. So the next time you sing an old song, look for God in it. The next time you sing a new song, look for God in it. Worship is a tool to help us see God. But secondly, worship is God-centered. It, worship, is about God, not me. Now, just to make sure we get that point, we're going to put this up on the screen. I want us to say it a couple times out loud together because I, think I need to hear myself say it and you need to hear yourself say it. Would you say it with me a couple times? Ready? Worship is about God, not me. Again, Worship is about God, not me. Five-year-old boy, one year for Mother's Day, bought his mother a picture frame, of course, probably with the help of his dad. <laughs> well, she loved the gift, you know, at that age, you know, the moms appreciate any gift from their, their child. She loved it, so she, she took the cat picture that had come with the frame, you know, one of those standard pictures that's just to have a picture in there. Uh, she takes the cat picture out, and she replaced it with a picture of the little boy. Well, she figured it would make him happy, but he got upset. And he explained to his mom, why are you putting a picture of me in there when I gave you a picture of a cat? <laughs> well, here's a question. Is it possible that we do just the opposite with God in worship? God gives us a picture of his son Jesus, and we replace it with a picture of ourselves, <laughs> And we make it all about us. God is the center of attention in Revelation 4. He's the center of attention. He's the main focus. Both the songs in Revelation 4 are about God. Verse 8, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Not holy, holy, holy is John the Apostle. Not holy, holy, holy is Tom the Preacher. <laughs> holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Verse 11, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. You see, worship is not about you or me, and it's not about how you or I feel. It's not about me getting a spiritual buzz or a sentimental feeling. It's not about me feeling warm and fuzzy when I walk out of the room. No, worship is focusing outside ourself and becoming aware of God's glory and God's greatness. That's the point. You see, in genuine worship, we see our unworthiness. We've sung all morning about God's worthiness, but it's a reminder that that means I'm not worthy, whereas he is. Just look at virtually every time in the Bible that someone was confronted by the glory of God or the majesty of Jesus 
they did not bounce out of the temple and exclaim, great service today, God. Man, I really enjoyed it. No, almost unanimously, when someone actually confronted the presence of God or saw God in some way, they walked away trembling. Moses trembled at the burning bush in the presence of God. Isaiah trembled and was overwhelmed by his own sinfulness when he saw God in the temple. Peter, when he saw Jesus do something amazing in Luke chapter 5, falls down and says, go away from me, I'm an unclean man. And John, back in chapter 1 and verse 17, and verse we saw two weeks ago, John says, of his, remember his good friend Jesus? He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. See, there was a sense of smallness and unworthiness in the presence of God. So if we truly worship, we see our unworthiness as part of the package. Or maybe we haven't really seen God close enough. But secondly, when we worship, we see God on his throne. Striking to me how often the word throne comes up in Revelation, especially this chapter, chapter 4. Verse 2, at once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven. Verse 3, the rainbow encircled the throne. Verse 4, surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. Verse 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning. Uh, on down to verse 5, before the throne. And it's in, in verse 6, before the throne, and again, around the throne. Ten times in Revelation 4, it talks about the throne of God. Five times in chapter 5, and 46 times in the book of Revelation, talks about the throne of God. You see, the throne is the center of attention. All people and creatures were encircling the throne. Matter of fact, it, it kind of goes in concentric circles around the throne. In, in chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, it, gives, it talks about four living creatures, and I think they're to represent all living creatures. So in a real sense, I think what it's saying is that all creatures, the doves and the elephants, the tigers and the eagles, the oxen and the iguanas, the dolphins and the llamas are all surrounding the throne. They're all God's creation. And then there's a chain reaction. In chapter 5, verse 8, you see the elders encircling the throne. Then in verse 11, you see the angels in heaven encircling the throne. And then chapter 5, verse 13, you have all peoples in heaven and on earth encircling the throne. It was all about the throne. This image is even frequent in the Old Testament. Let me just read you three examples real quick from the Psalms. Psalm 47, verse 7 and 8. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing to him a psalm of praise. God reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne. Psalm 93 opens up with these two verses. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and is armed with strength. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. Your throne was established long ago. You are from all eternity. Psalm 99 begins. The Lord reigns. The, let, let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim. Like the, let the earth shake. Great is the Lord in Zion. He is exalted over all the nations. And the point is, by showing the throne over and over and over in Revelation, is that God is Lord over every ruler. So pick the age. God was Lord over the Caesars during the first century. He was Lord over Nero, who was so full of himself. 
He was lord over Genghis Khan and Napoleon. He was lord over Hitler and Stalin. He's been lord over every single president of the United States. He's lord over the dictator in North Korea, and he's lord over the would-be tyrant up in Canada. The Lord God is on his throne. The Lord God is on his throne. And from that, we see points, point C, and that's very important. We see the world from God's perspective. When we actually allow ourselves to see God on his throne, it helps us to see the world and our problems and situations and tribulations from God's perspective. This is very important in a world that sometimes gets us down. It's an interesting image in chapter 4 and verse 3, an image of a rainbow. Chapter 4, verse 3 says, Surrounding the throne, uh, um, wrong verse, sorry. And the one who sat there uh, had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. There was a rainbow, and that was a circular one. I don't know did as I saw one out of a plane last year. I took a picture of it. It's completely a circle, circular rainbow. But this rainbow is circling the throne of God, and this harkens back to God's promise to Noah in the Old Testament. It's an image of peace. Folks, write this in on your outline. There is peace at the throne of God. There is peace at the throne of God. Of God. In other words, everything's cool with God no matter how panicked we feel. Everything is cool with God. He's not pacing the streets of gold. He's not wringing his hands nervously. He's not baffled by whatever crisis you are facing at work or in your family or in your finances. God is not baffled by it. There is peace at the throne of God. Revelation 2 and 3 talks about the persecution these people were facing. Chapter 6, we'll see next week, there was persecution and martyrdom. So right in the middle, God says, okay, I know what's going on in your world. I know the persecution that's happening. I know what we're going to talk about next. So in chapter 4 and 5, God's saying, I want you to take a good, long look at the throne. The throne. His throne, where he still sits. Nobody has removed him. So worship is intended to help transport us to God's throne where we can look up and see, yep, he's still there. No matter what's going on at my work, he's still there. He's still on his throne. It's one of the most valuable lessons I ever learned when I was 21 years old. And I know I've told the story, so I'll tell it very quickly and leave a ton of details out about the scariest morning of my life working with the mission in Eastern Europe. It's a Friday morning, 1978. We were leaving the country of Austria where our mission base was. We were crossing, about to cross into the border of Hungary, uh, into the country of Hungary, which was communist at that time, at a border crossing called Hege Shalom. From a distance way back, I was able to watch as our mission co-workers, uh, way up, separated from us, got caught taking... Christian literature into the country, and they hauled the full-time missionary into the uh, headquarters for interrogation. We inched our way up, and we got waved pretty much right through. <laughs> we went on into the, um, the country, and of course, I, I was sure we were going to get caught or, that caught, or they were going to track us or something. They apparently did not. Uh, we spent the next two days doing the stuff we were supposed to be doing in the country, came back to the mission base on Sunday night, 
And it was crazy because <laughs> they had spent the last two days wondering about all of us and what happened to us and where you followed and was this a setup and, and everybody was freaking out, man. We, 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 you know, we're doing this work for God and, and, and we prayed for, for safe border crossings and then some of our group gets caught at the border and kicked out of the country and what's going on and where was God Friday morning when all this stuff was happening? And my spiritual hero and my mentor, Gene Dolan reminded us of, of some things at chapel that night. He got everybody from the base together. He started listing off all the things that could have happened that did not, one after another. And then he said something I will never forget. He said, God has not abdicated his throne. And for the last 44 years, every time something has happened in my life or around me that I thought was too big, I remember Gene Dolan standing there in Austria saying, God has not abdicated his throne. Folks, worship helps us see this, or to see this world's tribulations from the perspective of God's throne. So friends, when we feel the most stressed and distracted, that's when we need worship the most. When we feel the most uncertain and fearful in our life, that's when we need worship the most. When we feel the least like worshiping, that's when we need worship the most. Because there is peace at the throne of God and worship helps take us there. Here's the third thing about worship we learn in these two chapters. Worship is a natural response to worthiness. That's really the point in chapter 5. That's what we've talked about and sung about all morning. The word worship actually literally comes from two words. It's the idea of worth-ship. In other words, assigning worth to something. So when people see something or see someone who amazes them, they attribute worth to it. In other words, they worship that. That's what all the word means, attributing worth to someone. So worship, then, is a response to who God is. It's a response to who God is. In other words, in worship, we're reminded through words, songs, whatever, that he is holy, he is majestic, he is eternal, he's all-seeing, he's all-powerful, he's in control, he is faithful. And that's why they sing in chapter 4, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That's why we sing in verse 11, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. We honor his worthiness for who he is. But it also means we honor his worthiness. It's a response to what God does. Not just who he is, but what God does. So chapter 5 opens up with a strange scene. Chapter 5 is kind of strange. John says, Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? And then it gets real negative. It says, But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And John says in verse 4, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. So this scroll or book apparently is something written by God on both sides, probably symbolic of God's plan and his purpose for the world or something. But nobody, nobody was worthy to open it up. 
except one. Verse 5 says, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and the seven seals. And at this point, John's probably thinking he's going to see this massive lion, the lion of Judah, walk into the room. But he says in verse 6, Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders, he had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and there were, they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So John is enabled in this vision to see the lion, the Old Testament image of Jesus, the Messiah, and he also sees a lamb, the Old Testament image of the sacrificial system. Now, Jesus' cousin and forerunner, John the Baptist, in John chapter 1, helps us understand verse 5 and 6 and who the lamb really is. Because one day when John the Baptist had some of his followers and he's teaching, Jesus came walking by, and here's what John said. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward, them, toward him and said, Look, he's pointing at Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In other words, the Lamb we see in John 1 and the Lamb we see in Revelation 5 was Jesus, the sacrificial Lamb, dying for our sins. Jesus was the Passover Lamb whose blood covers us and protects us. Jesus was the Lamb who was slain and came back to life to defeat death. And that's why verse 7 says he had the authority and worthiness to open the scroll. He didn't have to ask permission. He walked up to the throne of God and just grabbed the scroll and opened it. You see, God sent a Lamb for us. God sent a Lamb for us. And that's why we can join the elders and the angels and all living creatures in a new song in verse 9. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be king, a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. And then lots more join in in verse 11 or in verse 12 and say, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And more join in in verse uh, 13, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. You see, Jesus is worshipped by all God's angels and all God's people because... He is worthy. Worship is the natural response to the one who died in our place. But finally, these two chapters teach us this about worship. Worship is bowing before God. Years ago, I did a word study for a class on the Greek word proskuneo, which is translated worship in the New Testament, and it simply has the idea of bowing before the word itself implies bowing. And it's striking to me that in these images, in chapter 4, verse 10, it says, And the 24 elders, what did they do? Fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They fall down. 
chapter 5, verse 8 says, And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. And then again in verse 13 and 14, Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and, and, and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen and the elders, what? Fell down and worshiped. That's one reason our decision song in just a few minutes is going to be a song straight out of this chapter. We fall down. Think of that image of these elders with their crowns who had been circling the throne in the previous image we saw, and they're all now on their knees, and they're ripping their crowns off their head saying, I don't deserve this crown. See, those with great authority were bowing down before the Lord of all. The apostles were bowing down. The Old Testament patriarchs were bowing down. See, when we truly see and worship God, our crowns come off. And bowing helps illustrate that. In our case, worship means bowing our head at times, bowing our body at times, but always bowing our heart. And let me just say it again. We sing a lot, or we sit a lot in, in church. We stand a lot. We do not bow enough because that's the one that's the most biblical of all of them. Why should we bow? Because he is worthy. What are we demonstrating when we bow? Well, first of all, we're bowing in humility. In humility. Verses 2 through 4 in chapter 5 illustrate no one was worthy. We aren't worthy. We can't carry out God's plan. We can't save ourselves. Isaiah, when he saw God in chapter 6 and verse 3 through 5, knows instantly how unworthy he is. They were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. And notice Isaiah's reaction was not, Oh, that's really cool. His reaction was, Woe to me. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. I am unworthy. Folks, in worship, we see God's majesty in our smallness. In worship, we see God's holiness in our sinfulness. In worship, we see God's all-sufficiency in our great need. And the result is we bow in humility. We lose our pride and our arrogance. One sign that you and I have probably not worshipped is if we go strutting out of this building. If we've truly worshipped, we probably should walk out of here saying, I saw God today, and, and I'm not him. I saw that God is great, and I saw that I am not. But I also realize that I am loved, and I am complete when I am in his presence. <laughs> so I worship him. We bow in humility. We also are bowing in adoration interesting in chapter four or chapter four verse four the elders are wearing crowns and then as we saw in that image a minute ago in verse 10 they laid down their crowns they laid down their crowns see when you and i truly worship we should symbolically lay down all of our crowns and our trophies and our victories and our achievements from life and say god you are someone far greater than me and without you, I could not have done any of these things. Here, here they are. If 
we walk out of here amazed at God, we've probably worshipped. But also point C, when we bow, it means we're bowing in preparation for service. Verse 10 of chapter 5, we saw this in chapter 1 too, says you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. See, God saved us so that we could serve him and help others find him. And when I worship, in a sense, what I should be saying to God when I worship is, God, Tom Claiborne here, at your service, your majesty, now what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? If we walk out of here prepared to do something meaningful for God, we have probably truly worshipped. But also finally, when we bow before God, it means we're bowing in repentance. And this was the focus last week in chapters 2 and 3. In other words, we see God and we realize we are unworthy. We desire cleansing from Jesus, the Lamb. We want to repent of things in our life that are not right, things that are keeping us from God. Repenting is letting God get rid of the junk in our life because we've seen him and we want to be more like him. It's said that some trees, and I think the, the pin oak out here in the, in the churchyard is one of them, where the leaves don't instantly come off in the fall. Now, the winds the last couple weeks have taken a lot more of those off there, but if you'll look out there, the, my big oak tree behind my house, almost all the leaves have been gone for three or four months. But the, one, the pin oak out there, it usually is spring before the last leaves go off. And in those type of trees, what happens is they won't just fall off. Eventually, it takes the new green bud pushing its way through and shoving the old one out. You see, when we truly worship, we allow God to bring some new good things into our life that shove out the junk of our life. When we allow his spirit to control more of our life, then he helps us push the old dead things out of our life and out of our attitudes and everything else. When we walk out of here wanting to live a better life, a changed life, then we've probably worshipped. And the Lamb is who made that possible. You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Jesus died for us as a loving and complete sacrifice so we could be forgiven and so our sins could be taken away because we can't do it ourselves. So the question is, what will you and I do in, in response to that? If we have truly remembered God at the Lord's table, if we've truly noticed him and looked at him in the words of a song or a reading or a video or anything else, we're going to say, God, what do I need to do? What do I personally need to do? What is that in your case? Is it accepting the offer of forgiveness? Is it worshiping more faithfully and meaningfully? Is it praying more? Is it repenting of a specific sin? Is it healing a broken relationship? Is it forgiving somebody? Is it being baptized into Christ? Is it that you begin serving in some way? Bottom of your page, as we prepare to sing our song from Revelation 5, we fall down. Here's a question. God, what do you want me to do? All right, emphasize the word God. He's the one on the throne, remember? <laughs> the one on the throne, we're asking, God, what do you want me to do? In other words, I'm not asking. 
I'm not asking about Carolyn or Libby or Shirley or Justin or Mitchell. I'm saying, God, what do you want me to do? Because I've been here today and given the privilege of seeing you. Front page of your bulletin is my favorite quote on worship. You've probably heard me say this quote more than any other quote ever, I'm guessing. Peter Marshall put it this way. He says, I know, Father, that I must come to you just as I am. In other words, I can't be anybody right where I am right now. I've come to you. But he goes, but I also know that I dare not leave you just as I came. In other words, if I've really walked into your presence, God, (laughs) I can't leave the same. Something's going to change. An attitude, actions, (laughs) get rid of some junk, whatever it is. I mentioned several things that you or I may need to take care of and let God take care of in our life this morning. But you and I individually have to choose and do something about that. So as we sing this song this morning, think about what we're saying. When we fall down, we lay our crowns straight out of Revelation 5. That's what we're singing. I'm going to lay my crowns down, whatever they are. The things that come ahead of you, God, I'm going to put those down, and I'm going to follow you completely. Thank you for listening to the Bethlehem Church of Christ podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and think others can benefit from it, we encourage you to share it on social media, subscribe to our podcast, or leave us a rating and review on the podcast platform you use. You can also connect with us online at Bethlehem505.org or find us on Facebook. Please join us next time as we each seek to understand God's Word and follow His Son, Jesus Christ.